Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with David French. David is a senior editor of The Dispatch and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and he was previously a senior writer for National Review and a columnist for Time Magazine. He is a former constitutional litigator and past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and his most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David is also a former major in the United States Army Reserve and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, where he was awarded the Bronze Star. And in this conversation, we talk about all of the forces that are pulling American society apart. We discuss David's experience as a JAG officer in Iraq and his experience of being harassed to really an extraordinary degree by the far right for coming out against Trump. We talk about the way that real grievances drive political derangement, the illiberalism on both the left and the right, the role of prophecy in evangelical support for Trump, honor culture, the response to Hunter Biden's laptop, the January 6th hearings, the personality cult of Trumpism, federalism, geographic sorting, group polarization, cultural divisions in sports and entertainment, the gun rights movement, the ethics of gun ownership, whether Trump will be prosecuted, the looming 2024 presidential campaign, the dangers of online activism, and other topics. Anyway, it was great to finally get David here. I've been an admirer of his work for a long time, even though I know there are many topics on which we disagree. He is, after all, a religious conservative, but that made his perspective on the issues we did discuss all the more valuable. And now I bring you David French. I am here with David French. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. Uh, yeah, me, me too. I've been uh, long been an admirer of your short form writing. I haven't. Uh, it's your last book is the first book uh, of yours I've read in anticipation of this podcast, uh, which we'll talk about. But um, yeah, it's great to finally speak with you because your political commentary has been more than edifying. Uh, low these these many years where everything <laughs> seems to have gone toward the brink and in many cases into the abyss. Yeah, it's <laughs> I I did not have this level of extremism. If you talked to me 20 years ago, I would not have seen this level of extremism, but it started emerging pretty soon after that and and now here we are. Yeah. Yeah, well so so let's catch people up on your background here to before we get started. Your m- most recent book which came out in 2020 is Divided We Fall, uh which talks about this problem of American division that we're going to get into, and and you focus on the prospect of secession, uh, you know, actual secession, uh, the actual right. fragmentation of the political union of the United States, and we'll talk about that as well. I mean, that you know, on its face, that has always seemed like a highly implausible threat, and yet you make it sound all too plausible when you get into the details in the book, and I, I can only imagine since the book came out nearly two years ago. It came out right before yeah. the 2020 election. Uh, I, I assume things have only 
gotten worse in the meantime. Is there any? Is that right, or do you, how do you how do you view the last eighteen plus months since you published the book? Yeah, I would say that things have accelerated in a worse. They've accelerated more than I thought they would. I was pessimistic, but I did not see, for example, January sixth occurring mm-hmm. when I when I wrote the book. I did not see, for example, things like the Texas GOP you know, one of the largest and most influential wings of the Republican Party in the United States calling for a secession referendum in Texas. Now, doubtful it will happen anytime soon. But this, you know, this kind of conversation and this this level of polarization is absolutely something that's accelerated. And, and when I wrote the book, I was nervous about using the word secession. I was nervous about introducing the, con- the concept. But what I saw was that we didn't have, and this is something I say right up front, that there is no single truly important cultural, political, religious, social trend that is pulling us together more than it's pushing us apart. And it, it's not just politics. It's where we live. It's how we live. It's our pop culture. It's so many different fronts are sort of pushing us apart. Yeah. I mean, so I, I must admit, I have a, I had a knee-jerk reaction to the concept of Secession as just being a bridge or or several bridges too far. I mean, just it right. just sounds so implausible. But when I actually look at the assumptions that are that are anchoring that reaction, it's just there's so many assumptions like these that have been destroyed in recent years. I mean, I you right. know, I, I never would have imagined. Uh, I mean, I, the truth is, I still can't imagine that Trump was ever president of the United States. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it's like I, I feel like you know I, I keep waking up in some alternate universe where that black mirror fiction has become a reality, but it will always seem implausible to me, even though it it's already happened. And the idea that we would have you know a Republican Party that is not only accepting but enthusiastically embracing a president, a you know a former president who not only failed to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, but engineered a, a violent one, right. it, you know, it's just beyond shocking. So it's a, you know, the, the idea that we could live in a world where Texas or California could ultimately secede, uh, I mean, that just, you know, not that many more dominoes have to fall to make those events seem plausible. Right. Well, you know, think about what we've learned about January 6th since January 6th, that mm. You know, if you're think there are two things, both before the sixth and after the sixth, that are particularly sobering to me. So before the sixth, what's incredibly sobering is that there was, as we've now learned, this incredibly comprehensive effort to overturn the results of the election that depended a great deal on if Mike Pence had just said yes, where mm. would we have been? We would have been through the looking glass on a constitutional crisis. If it, and all of this pressure focused on Mike Pence saying yes to this comprehensive scheme to either flip their results right there on January 6th or send them back to the states and then creating an enormous amount of chaos. And then after Mike Pence says no, this is one thing that's incredibly sobering to me, is if you look at the approval ratings of Donald Trump and Mike Pence after January 6th, one of their only one of the two, their approval rating plunges, and it's mm. Mike Pence, not Donald Trump. It's incredible. So what that told me is that you had a Republican Party that was so fully committed to this election steal effort 
that even a longtime Republican who had stood by Donald Trump's side every moment of his presidency, who then appeals to his faith as an evangelical who is sort of the representative of the evangelical base in the Trump administration, appeals to his faith to do the right thing, and he's rejected by his own movement in favor of Donald Trump. And to me, in some ways, that was as sobering as all of the events that happened before, that not even the shock of the moment of January 6th could shake people Hmm. from this hyper-partisanship and animosity and distrust that led them down the road of the Stop the Steal effort. Well, I want to get to January 6th and Trump and all the attendant horrors there, uh, but I I promise to properly introduce you, uh, which I will have done in in the intro, but I think you should say something about your orientation here, because sure. lest you be mistaken for the the usual libtard who has the <laughs> who, who's just nodding along with my with my libtard blasphemy here. What is your political <laughs> background? Yeah, so I I grew up a Republican. I was a, a Reagan Republican from way back. Conservative lawyer, pro life, religious liberty attorney. Uh, ran for a while the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, which is a civil liberties nonprofit defending free speech and due process and religious freedom and higher education, and then was a part of Christian conservative legal organizations, uh, was a re- delegate to the 2012 Republican National Convention. So I was definitely mm-hmm. Republican, a Romney delegate. And then um, in 2016, I broke with their GOP over Trump. So mm-hmm. going all the way back to the early phase of the primary season, I, I could not continue to support a party that would put that person as its leader. So did you break the moment he became the the candidate? Before, well, I I broke with the Republican Party the moment he became the candidate. I I became never Trump, you know, to use that phrase, Mm -hmm. much earlier when he was a front runner. Once I began to realize who this person truly was, because, you know, like a lot of Americans, my main exposure to Donald Trump was as an entertainer, not as a politician. And then you begin to see the sort of the true dimensions of his character or lack thereof during the campaign. And I just realized that I, I could not look at myself in the mirror, much less my fellow citizens who I'm, you know, in the 1990s, I'm somebody's standing and yelling character matters, character matters, character matters about mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. I couldn't do that in 1998 and then turn around in 2016 and say, oh, well, you know, forget all that. Yeah. And also you're a, a veteran, right? You were in the army. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was in the Army Reserve and I was active duty serving in the Iraq War during the surge in 2007-2008. I was a JAG officer, an Army lawyer. I served with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in Diyala during the Diyala province during the surge. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the experience of a lawyer in combat? I mean, do, do you actually <laughs> are you just you know cowering in the green zone looking at legal briefs <laughs> or are you out there uh, risking your life in various uh, operations that require the presence of a, a lawyer? What's going on there? So it's a mix. So I, I was with a combat arms unit, so I was not in the green zone. So I was out in Diala province, far, far away from the green zone mm. uh, in Baghdad. And my commander, my squadron commander, I was with, with an armored cavalry squadron, was very clear. He said, you, you cannot make decisions that impact the lives of soldiers until you experience in my CAV troopers until you experience what they experience. So I was in the base a lot and I was outside of it a lot. So I was doing detainee operations. I was doing 
law of armed conflict, assisting the command and making decisions, you know, shoot, don't shoot, bomb, don't bomb. I was out doing tribal relations work. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, if I'm going to be in an armored cavalry squadron, I, got an under, I have to understand what the area of operations is like. And so I was outside the wire quite a bit doing, you know, various aspects of my job. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense, I think you mentioned it briefly in the book, but I, I get the sense that your experience in Iraq has um, primed you for various epiphanies and concerns about the fragmentation you, you're witnessing in our own society. Yeah. How, how, how do you see what's happening in the U.S.? I mean, it's not just the U.S., but we're, we're right. focused at home here through the lens of the failed state of Iraq. Yeah, there was one specific aspect of the Iraqi civil war that really stood out to me as an alarm bell for us. And it was, it was essentially, if you talk to Sunni or if you talk to Shia at the height of the war, the underlying divisions between them at some level seemed quite solvable. In mm-hmm. other words, you, you could have a degree of, of religious tolerance where both Sunni and Shia could practice their, the different, you know, their faiths, which are somewhat different, but you know, they're both Islamic faiths, but somewhat different. With full liberty, oil revenue divisions are, super, are certainly manageable. Man- differences in, in governance of each region, certainly manageable. But the thing that was truly difficult to deal with, with was the grievances. And when I say grievances, I mean real grievances. In other words, if you talk to a Shia, you know, Shia militiaman and you start to explain, explore why they've taken up arms, they're going to have a terrible story of what the Sunni have done to their family or to, done to their tribe. And vice versa, vice versa with the Sunni telling about Shia atrocities. And what really strikes me about our divisions here is if you really, if you boil down a lot of the political disputes are subject to compromise. I mean, they're, there's not an in, they're not unsolvable. I mean, even if you look at an issue like abortion, which the, you know, the pro-choice and pro-life seem miles apart, but the large majority of Americans are in a, a more middle position. The, the political issues seem pretty darn solvable, but the level of animosity is what's really driving our polarization and this story of grievance and anger. And that's what struck me in Iraq was this constant feeling of grievance and anger that was rooted in very real things that happened. We're starting to see replicate itself here, you know, to a lesser degree. Thankfully, it's not, you know, we're not in a situation like Sunni and Shia were in Iraq. But if you talk to a Republican, they can tell you chapter and verse of terrible things that the left has done. If you talk to mm. A, a progressive, they can tell you chapter and verse of terrible things that the right has done, and they're real things, you know, so they're actual real outrages that, peop- that are driving a lot of our division. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I noticed that in, again, a somewhat more abstract way in the careers of several people I know, uh, you know, who have a, an experience I, I share to some degree. I mean, I, you know, I know many people on the left or who are formerly on the left who with the the eruption of of wokeness mm-hmm. you know pre and post trump experienced something like a, an attempted reputational murder from their right. fellow liberals right and you know you you, right. you you send the wrong tweet or you you have the wrong position on black lives matter say and what you meet among your your former 
co-tribalists is nothing but contempt grading into a a fully weaponized sociopathic attempt to destroy your life, right? And and Twitter is the the medium upon which uh, most of this happens. And then I've noticed these people, you know, many of whom have podcasts or they're out there spreading their views to one degree or another. I've noticed them migrate toward Trumpistan, and some of them have mm-hmm. been fully absorbed by it. And yeah. it's clearly a a psychosocial phenomenon for them. I mean, it's not like I mean, these are people who who were real liberals, and it's not yeah. that they're the foundation of their political views has shifted. It's that they have been enrolled in a kind of psychological experiment, which, for, from my point of view, they they failed. Right? I mean, this you know they became intellectually dishonest to a degree that should seem impossible in order to kind of do the emotional arithmetic on what you know what has happened to them they got love bombed by the right for everything they right. said against wokeness and uh, they got nothing but hate from the left and so they just decided to just flip everything upside down in their politics and ignore all of the obvious problems with What's happening on the on the right, you know, in, you know, including Trump, the problems uh, of Trump himself, but it, it does capture the the dynamics you just described, which is, you know, when you ask these people what the hell's going on, they have a a long list of grievances, right? I mean, they have been yes. just attacked endlessly by the left in the most dishonest ways possible, and it's um, you know, it, it just that is what. It, you know, that explains their their pilgrim's progress to uh, to the yeah. dark lord. Yeah, well, you know, and and we are as just as human beings, we long for relationship and community. And mm. and if you have been rejected by one community, if you've been purged, if you've been subject to a cam, you know, a, a, a storm of hatred, you're going to look for another community. It's the it's the most natural thing in the world, in a way. But at the same time. If you're longing for community and then you're going to ignore some of the real problems within that new community, you become in a in a sad way part of the problem that you know you're you, just switching from one flawed partisan tribe to another flawed partisan tribe because one of them rejected you, you know, contributes to our crisis in some important ways because what it does is it causes this other this your new tribe to sort of feel validated by your presence. See, they're so mm. bad. You know, yeah. they're so bad and look we're much more welcoming. But you know, if you if you drill down into what's happened in this country, there is not a phenom if you're going to talk about cancel culture, which a lot of people think of as mainly a left-wing phenomenon, it's all over the place on the right. All yeah. over the place. And you know, one of the things when I was researching the book that was very helpful for me, I was, I was talking to some experts in in conflict in the developing world who had, were beginning to refocus a lot of their efforts here in the United States because they were seeing some of the same things that caused civil strife overseas. They're seeing some of these same phenomenon here in the United States. And one of the most enlightening conversations I had was uh, with a scholar who said, "What you're when there is a revolutionary or an extremist moment, the first target of the extremists often isn't the other side. It's the quote in-group moderate hmm. of their own side. Yeah, because, the near enemy. Yes, the near enemy. You have to purge the near enemy or the in-group moderate to create the solidarity 
necessary to fight that next battle. And when you when you see that phenomenon, you just see it everywhere. Some of the most vicious cancel culturing or canceling you'll see is left on left, is blue on blue or red on red. Uh, in fact, it's actually pretty hard for blue to cancel red or red to cancel blue because yeah. you have that community that will rally to your side. Yeah. So what was your experience? For, remind me, where were you working as a journalist when yeah. you announced that you were a never-Trumper? And what was that experience <laughs> like? So I was at National Review, and this is in 2015 when I first became very strongly critical of Trump. And then 20, early 2016 was when I said I was going to be a never-Trump. And we faced a hellstorm from the beginning. I mean, in August 2015, I'll never forget, is when the first round of death threats came in, the first round of really horrific uh, social media harassment, including, you know, taking pictures of my then seven-year-old youngest daughter who's, who's adopted, and she's adopted from Ethiopia, and photoshopping her picture into uh, her face into gas chambers, into slave hmm. pictures. Threats aimed at my wife, threats aimed at me, at my family, online harassment. All of this started happening in 2015, 2016, and it's never fully stopped. Hmm. It just comes and goes. And uh, remind me, so the National Review did the, was it the editorial position of the magazine to go against Trump, or were you just an outlier within the organization? So the magazine had a cover story called Against Trump that was against him in the primaries. So the magazine formally came out against Trump in the primaries, but then did not endorse anyone in the general mm -hmm. election. So the editorial right. position of the magazine in the election was neutral. And so I had a, a number of colleagues who voted for Trump and a number of colleagues who did not. And National Review, because it's sort of historically been the flagship intellectual journal of the right became the center of just an enormous amount of contention and pressure. Now, the magazine itself did a great job in sort of granting academic freedom to each one of its writers that we were, you know, no one told me to change my mind in leadership that I needed to support Trump if I was, if I was going to stay at National Review. But mm. the pressures being put on National Review were incredibly strong. And and look, a lot of the guys who are my friends, you know, my friends to this day, I'm not at National Review currently anymore, but who are my friends to this day, they, they were pretty darn courageous in resisting the, the pressure to turn, to make National Review sort of a house organ of the Trump administration, which it never was. Mm. So, um, let's see, I was thinking we would save Trump until the end, but um, the, the tractor beam pull of <laughs> His awfulness is uh, being felt <laughs> with every sentence here. Let's, uh, well, uh, we may bounce around. I mean, th this is a generic problem of uh, hyperpolarization and uh, what you refer to in the book as negative polarization, which we should right. describe. And just, you know, the loss of trust in our institutions, the fragmentation of media, the breakdown of civility, the upregulation of tribalism. Um, conspiracy thinking. Uh, so th there's the generic problem that visits the left and the right. I think it does so with some important differences, which we might discuss, but I think we'll probably spend more time on the right, the problem of the right. Um, I, I think you and I will fully agree, 
about the problem on the left and the right, frankly. And it's it's interesting to consider that because, you know, on paper, you and I, sh- you know, are, are not in the same <laughs> tribe, right? I mean, you're right. you're an evangelical Christian. I'm a famous atheist. I've said some very nasty things about your faith, which is, you know, you, you, <laughs> I, I got to think is it has not, uh, you know, warmed you up for this conversation. And yet, you and I are going to have a an entirely civil conversation about all of these things. Uh, so, what tribe are we in? Is you know, is the rhetorical question I would ask all of the people who accuse me. I don't know about you, but I'm often accused of tribalism, even though I attack the left and I attack the right, and I have positions that are not entirely predictable. For instance, you and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, will disagree about abortion, and yet we're going to agree about guns. And so it's just, you know, tribalism does not capture the animus you and I are going to express on the various topics that uh, will provoke our animus. And that's a good thing, because I mean, tribalism, in my view, is is one of our greatest problems at this point. The idea right. that people feel this social pressure to conform to the the sway of uh, ascendant bad ideas, and in, in many cases, ideas which are obviously bad and, and claims which are obviously false. I guess uh, before we, we lurch into Trumpistan, <laughs> is there something general you can say about the, uh, the different expression of this problem on the left and yeah. the right politically? Yeah. And, well, you know, and one thing, just going back to what you were saying a moment ago about our differences, I think that while we certainly have differences on a number of fronts, we're both small L liberals and both committed to American pluralism. Yeah. So in other words, you know, we both see a role in a place and should, and there should be a role in a place for, for each of us in the American system and the American the American system is supposed to exist, is supposed to provide a place where atheists, atheist and Christian can live side by side and both communities can flourish. That's sort of a, a, a hallmark of the American classical liberal system when it's functioning well. And so I've always perceived you as being quite committed to American pluralism. And this is, I think, where a lot of the new, there's an old culture war, which is over things like gun control or abortion or religious liberty hmm. and and there's an it's being supplanted i think by a new culture war that is really quite frankly over liberalism and pluralism itself and and this is where i feel like the far right and the far left actually have a lot more in common than one might think uh, woke and anti-woke have a lot in common and and the thing that they have in common is they are deeply questioning that American small L liberalism. They're deeply questioning pluralism. And, mm. you know, for example, the critical race theory argument. Now, there are elements of critical race theory that I've learned from, and, and I've, I've read CRT stuff for 30 plus years since my first day of law school. And But there are elements that I find to be quite troubling, including the way in which it directly confronts American uh, small L liberalism, American classical liberalism. And you see a lot of that arising on the right as well. So while on one hand, you might say, well, the left is quite different from the right because it's going to be very, very aggressive on trans rights and the right is going to be very aggressive in combating that move. What you'll see when you scratch below the surface of both efforts is you'll see a a lot of illiberalism, a lot of willingness to use the power of the state 
to force sort of compliance or to sort to force by main force to sort of defeat your opponents, not just in the marketplace of ideas, convincing other people that they're wrong, but actually using the power of the state to punish your political opponents. And that's something that I think you're actually seeing a commonality between the right and left that's disguised by the different issues that they advance. Yes. Yeah. I guess that the, the important asymmetry for me, and I I know you've commented on this in in other Mm -hmm. forums, is that um, when you're talking about the derangement of the left, you are talking about something that has spread like a proper social contagion and moral panic in our most elite institutions, right? So if, mm-hmm. if the, the true decision makers don't quite believe this stuff, they are, they are swayed sufficiently by the people who do that you see the, you know, the capitulation of the New York Times and scientific journals like you know, Science and Nature and The Lancet uh, you see the ACLU become the, the antithesis of what it used to be, to say nothing of the Southern Poverty Law Center. You, you see this just right. the, the breakdown in, in elite institutions in you know, Hollywood, et cetera, along these lines or on these issues. And what you see on the right is not, I mean, apart from the fact that we had a sitting president of the United States who was effectively the psychological and, and social equivalent of Alex Jones. I mean, it's, that's its own unique danger and derangement. But when you talk about it, what, the extreme of the right, you know, you talk about white supremacy, say, mm-hmm. that is not, I mean, it is, you know, politically odious and it's no doubt it's a reservoir of, of potential violence that we should worry about. But it doesn't drive culture in the same way that what's happening on the left drives culture. And I, I guess, you know, that's a, yeah, it's a distinction that, may ultimately not matter all that much, but it, it's mattered to me because what's wrong with white supremacy, you know, what's wrong with the KKK, what's wrong with someone like David Duke is so obvious, right? It takes absolutely mm-hmm. no intellectual fuel to point out what's, what's wrong with that and to disparage it and to consider it, you know, disqualifying. But when you, when you ask, you know, what's wrong with, you know, the, all of the intersectional confusion that is you know causing people to call for the, the you know the firings of people who simply you know balk at at any claim that you know there, there are no difference between men and women say right, right. And, and it, like like that is that's so confusing to so many people and it's having such a outside influence on our yes conversation that it's much closer to home for me i mean when the new york times is reliably wrong about you know, trans issues or jihadism or whatever the, the, the issue is, and not only wrong, but dishonest, mm-hmm. well, then, you know, the, then we just have the most important newspaper in the world, you know, visibly destroying itself. And that's yes. different than some lunatics with AR-15s claiming they're going to take over the United States you know, with their militia. Um, and that's its own problem, but it's not the same kind of cultural problem. I, I would I would agree with that with the caveat. I would agree that when you're talking about significant problems in a place like the New York Times or say Harvard or Yale, these are institutions that have enormous influence, not just, you know, in the United States, but globally. Yeah. And and so if you have deep, deep dysfunction in these institutions, the effect of that radiates far beyond, you know, the walls of the New York Times building. 
or the you know the the har- far beyond Harvard Yard. But I, the caveat that I would say is that there is a deep dysfunction in many very very important conservative institutions. They don't have as much purchase like the sort of dysfunction in evangelical Christianity doesn't have as much purchase, say, in Los Angeles or in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but it has immense amount of impact in, in Middle Tennessee, where I live, Yeah, or dysfunctions within the broader gun culture. That doesn't have as much of an impact in, again, in LA or Boston, where there's not just, just not that, not so many people who own weapons. I mean, of course, the crime problems are, are deeply troublesome, but you know, when there's problems with gun culture, that's, that's quite influential where I am. And, and so, and a lot of people on the right then downplay their own cultural influence by sort of saying, well, we don't really have to worry about our cultural maladies because the New York Times is so much more powerful or the or Harvard is so much more powerful. But where I am, where I live, the Southern Baptist Convention is much more potent culturally than Harvard mm-hmm. or the New York Times. And so, I agree with you. I think sort of as from an objective standpoint, I would say objectively dysfunction at the New York Times or Harvard is has an enormous radiating influence throughout the culture. But I would also say that a lot of people on the right just, I don't know what the right term is, they minimize or rationalize their own cultural dysfunction as somehow less important than it really is. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the asymmetry that cuts the other way on the right is that on the right, you have the capitulation of the Republican Party yeah. to a full-on personality cult and mm-hmm. crazy conspiracy, right? I mean, it's just it's right. basically the, the Republican Party is, is halfway to QAnon now in terms of what the kinds of things that will claim to be true about what happened in the 2020 election, what happened on January 6th, the forward-looking dangers of, uh, to our democracy, you know, that, that um, it will... Uh, Ampli- you know, work to amplify, apparently. I mean, it's just, it's virtually anything you want to say against the Democratic Party, I would probably agree with at this point, but it hasn't become anti-democratic to the yes. degree that, that the Republican Party has. To the, to the degree where the Republican Party, many people in the Republican Party will actually scorn the idea that they should be democratic. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. So they'll, you know, they, re, they fall back on the idea that the United States is a republic and they'll say, no, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Well, we're a democratic republic. <laughs> you know, our, our foundational inst- our governmental institutions are elect, either elected or appointed by elected officials. I mean, even the counter-majoritarian constitution can be amended by strong majorities. So the idea that, you know, this sort of notion that Republicans, Republicans are splitting hairs when they, they reject this idea of that we're a democracy. Yeah, we are a republic. Yes, our republic is a constitutional republic and has counter-majoritarian elements to it, but it's still a democracy. So one question about Trump and, uh, the, the fact that he succeeded in becoming president that has just never been satisfactorily answered for me. Uh, you seem well-placed to consider it. Is it just how is it that evangelicals finally and so fully embraced him? I mean, you, you, like this, this guy was practically the Antichrist yeah. with respect to the, the degree to which he violated the values or the, or the professed values. Of, of evangelical Christianity. How is it that he succeeded in getting 
their support to that degree. And then, and that, I mean, I, I have to think that in the you know the aftermath of January sixth that you just described, where you have Mike Pence suffering a kind of you know reputational defenestration. Uh, for right. his, you know, maintaining his uh, oath to protect the Constitution and Trump's reputation only rising, uh, I got to think that was true among evangelicals as well. And, and and Mike Pence is, you know, in my world, practically an evangelical theocrat, right? I mean, it's just he he is as right. I mean, every single box you need to check to be in good standing <laughs> with the evangelical church, he, yeah. I, I think he has checked. So explain what has happened there. Okay. Well, I, there's a one thing that I think people have really pegged, uh, and then another thing that people, an underappreciated pe- factor that people don't talk about enough. So the one that I think that people have pegged is that if you spend 20, 25, 30 years telling a community of people uh, that it's six minutes to midnight on their religious liberty, that America is about to fall, that the Democrats represent an existential threat to their faith, not just to the country, but to their faith, then what that's going to have a distorting effect on a community. It's going to cause them to have a constant sense of emergency, and it's going to cause them to feel as if they have to take desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. So if you have the Flight 93 election essay where this guy named Michael Anton said, you know, look, we have to charge the cockpit or this plane is going down. That was a message that a lot of evangelicals were ready to hear. Now, the shame of that is that it's utterly contradicted by scripture. <laughs> so, you know, let me, let me put on my Bible quoting mm-hmm. hat for a minute. And, and the Apostle Paul wrote that God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power, and he's not talking about political power there, but confidence in the power of God, power, love, and of sound mind. And yet, how much did that spirit of fear drive so many evangelicals towards an unsound mind? I mean, this was the the conspiracy theories and everything that you saw. So that's the thing that I think people have accurately pegged, and that's, you know, that's the conventional wisdom that has a lot of truth to it. Now, here's the part that I don't think people fully understand. And this is, to me, even more troubling and more dangerous, the role of prophecy. Hmm. There are quite a, quite a few sort of self-proclaimed prophets who not only declared that Trump was God's, and you know, that, that God was going to decree that Trump was going to be president. They not only prophesied that Trump would be president, but their prophecy included this really dangerous element that was Donald Trump has a special anointing or a special divine purpose to save this country. So Donald Trump is God's man, and he's God's man for a very particular purpose. Mm. Who, who are and these so prophets? What, are these some megachurch pastors? So these would be Pentecostal, large Pentecostal megachurches and movements. A lot of people who are completely not household names. You would, ne- If you're on Twitter, you don't know this movement exists. Mm. <laughs> You would have more consciousness of it maybe if you're on Facebook, but it's totally outside of sort of the American elite. You know, the the Pentecostal world is something that the New York Times world just by and large doesn't comprehend. And so these are people who have huge platforms in religious media, and they would say, you know, Trump is God's man to save this country. Now, what does that do? One, 
it creates an unfalsifiable kind of argument. I've debated people about Trump. As a Christian, I've debated, uh, for example, a guy named Eric Metaxas, who was a reasonably Mm -hmm. well-known Christian intellectual. And it was very clear to me that he was under the influence of prophecy. Well, how do you debate that? How How do you reason with somebody who's under the influence of prophecy in that way? And then the other thing is when the prophecy is so quite is so clear that Trump is on a divine mission, then that means that resistance to Trump comes from where? Satan. Resistance from Trump is rooted in evil. And so it really created this extreme level of religious commitment to Trump and hostility towards his opponents. And I remember when there was this ridiculous Jericho march that was several days before, a couple of weeks before January 6th in December. And I wrote, I wrote in December, watch out, because the, the logic of this movement is going to lead towards violence. And, and sure enough, I mean, January 6th was the most predictable thing in the world once you saw the religious intensity of the support for Trump. And that religious intensity went way beyond the, hey, I'm afraid that America is going, you know, that the Democrats are going to hurt America and went much more towards if you are against Trump, you are thwarting God's divine plan. And that's where you saw that level of fanaticism that you saw on January 6th. Yeah, so um, just get, kind of get my head around that for a second. The, um, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it, it just seems like it could, if, if you rewind to 2015, mm-hmm. and I mean, this, this is something I, I legitimately didn't track, which is, you know, before Trump won the candidacy and when when you had a field of you know 15 or so candidates what was evangelical and pentecostal opinion at that point did the prophecies only get um articulated once he was the only choice in the face of the utter sacrilege of a Hillary Clinton presidency <laughs> well some were early so, so, you know, Trump gained a lot of support pretty quickly. Now, the interesting thing was the data indicates that Trump's initial support was a lot of it was located in non-church going evangelicals. Hmm. I know that sounds like a strange thing to say non-church going evangelicals, but sort of the more disconnected you were, the more the, the disconnected you were from civic institutions, including a congregation, the more likely you were to support Trump early on. But then once Trump gained the nomination and it was him and Hillary, then, of course, the dynamic changed. And so I think you, you began to have a snowball effect. So there were some who were early in on Trump, but then the snowball effect locked in. And then the other thing that was really important to sort of this faith and prophecy-based mindset was the shocking victory. Yeah. So the fact that yeah. nobody predicted or very few pre- people predicted that he'd win and he did win. Yeah. sent a message yeah. to millions of Christians that this was divine intervention. And I think that was the moment where a lot of this loyalty locked in in a way that a lot of people don't truly appreciate it. And I saw it happen in my community, and I saw it happen with my own eyes. Yeah, that is actually something that I've never thought about, but I, it, it resonates with me based on my own experience. I mean, it was so anomalous right. to have been so sure that he wasn't going to win, and then to have him win was such a discombobulating experience. The purely secular version of it was still something that 
almost seemed to cry out for you know some you know, non ordinary cause. Right. Yeah. It just it seemed like we woke up in an alternate universe. Right. Like the, the, the <laughs> right. laws of physics had been suspended to our horror. And so yeah, I could easily imagine that you know if you if you put on the lens of prophecy. Uh, it seems like, okay, this is the part of the movie where God makes his presence known. Right, exactly. Exactly. And and, and that's, again, something, you know, so I live, my neighborhood is, uh, there's this New York Times calculator where you can put in your address and it'll tell you sort of how thick is your bubble. Mm -hmm. My neighborhood is 85% Republican. The neighborhood I lived in in 2016, we moved in 2018, was about 80 to 90%, between 80 and 90% Republican. And I watched all this happen. I watched this sort of sense of despair on election day when everyone thought that Hillary was going to win turn into a sense of, you know, really, it's not just joy. It was sort of beyond joy. It's almost like an, a sense of ecstasy <laughs> that Hillary wasn't, didn't win. And, and it, it created this bond with Trump that is difficult to really fully ex explain. And, and I woke up the morning after or the day after Trump's victory and the bond between him and his base after that victory was extraordinary. And it was directly rooted in the surprise. And the surprise for a lot of people was directly rooted in divine intervention. And once that happened, you couldn't wedge some of these people away from Trump if you tried. Mm. Well, one of the things that, that many of us have speculated that explains Trump's appeal to people who you would think uh, wouldn't view him as an ally is this the variable of, of anti-elitism, right? I mean, he is somebody, right. even though he, on the one hand, tries to cash in on his bona fides as an, a member of the elite, right? He'll, he'll occasionally reference the fact that he went to good schools and he's a genius and he's a billionaire, etc., the main communication from him is he despises the people who despise you. He despises all of these people who went to Ivy League schools and who are doing right. nothing but judge you, um, you the common man who's been forgotten. And he doesn't judge you because he doesn't judge himself. I mean, because he's so without shame and mm -hmm. so without compunction and so without any aspiration to be better than he was yesterday, right? He, he, what he's for is the gratification of all of his own whims and appetites, and he. So he's got nothing to apologize for. Oh, you know. Oh, you caught me with a porn star. Well, go fuck yourself. Right. You know. You know. You you too. <laughs> right. You know, would want to be with a porn star, right? I mean, it's like there's just nothing. It is tennis without the net in every direction. There's no way for him to be a hypocrite because he holds himself to no standard ethically, right. intellectually. I mean, he doesn't even hold himself to a logical standard. If he, no, if he no. contradicts the thing he said 30 seconds ago, he doesn't care, and he, he's trained you not to care because it's all part of this kayfabe performance where mm -hmm. it's just, it's fake and it's real because it's, it's extra real because he's managed to get you to swallow all the fakeness. And it's, it's just a kind of moral potlatch, right? It's like, I'm going yeah. to burn everything to show you how much I don't have anything to lose. But the, the thing that is so compelling, I'm, again, this is all in the shape of a, of a hypothesis for me, ultimately, is that what I imagine is that the thing that's so compelling is that he, when you embrace him as your standard bearer, 
what, what you no longer have to stomach is anyone's judgment of you. With Trump, there's a basic communication that if you're supporting him, you're right about everything, and you're right to be <laughs> you're you're right to be endlessly aggrieved about everything. I don't know. It's I mean, I, in one of these podcasts, probably over a year ago or more, where I was kind of grappling with the, the Trump phenomenon, I, I I compared him to Jesus. I, I think I called him Fat Jesus, right? Like he's he's the, <laughs> he, the, the there's a, there's a kind of expiation of all your sins when you come to Trump, because he sins more gratuitously than anyone, and it's fine, right? He's proven to you that all is forgiven. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, I mean, I just, I realize I just vomited a bunch of uh, my TDS <laughs> on you, so you do, do with it what you will. Well, you know, uh, let, let, me, uh, let me tell you no about another phenomenon that I think is underappreciated. Again, coming, talking, you know, no one has to explain Trump support to me. You're, you're talking about my, my friends, you're talking mm -hmm. about extended family, my, my immediate family is, is agrees with me on Trump, but extended family. So I, this is not a hard thing for me to figure out. And one thing that is underappreciated is shame honor culture. Mm. So the South is a place that in their other, it's not just the South, but there are other parts of American culture that are shame honor cultures. They are extremely disrespect focused. And, you know, Trump comes from this sort of bridge and tunnel populism that also has that shame honor kind of conception where it's very focused on people looking down on him and very focused on not getting his due. And if you watch, once you understand sort of the prevalence of shame on or culture on the right, it begins to make sense of the entire business model of right-wing media. Why is right-wing media so grievance-focused? Why is it always focused on who's, you know, who's being elitist, who's being condescending? It's that shame honor instinct that's been a part of a particularly Southern culture forever. And, and so Trump played that up just perfectly. I mean, he was your middle finger to the elites. He was your middle finger to the establishment. How dare they come after us? And, and you but, see but, this but, dynamic. But just to... Uh, again, to, to give you a dose of my incredulity here, and now I feel mm -hmm. like I, I've, I've created a time machine in this episode, and we've gone back five years, and, and uh, I'm reprocessing my disbelief, but uh, <laughs> indulge me. How did that track through a moment like his, his repudiation of John McCain, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I like people who weren't captured, right? Yeah. I mean, how, like, how, did, how did not all of you know the southern honor bound military mm. culture just not erupt in just an absolute re rejection of of truly that it had to be a sacrilege if you're i mean or or is it or it was just a measure of just how unpopular McCain was for some reason yeah, so McCain was seen as an elitist McCain, mm. in spite of his heroic military service, in spite of his many long years of captivity. He was sort of seen as the establishment's establishment Republican. He was sort of mm -hmm. seen as the media's favorite Republican. And I, I will never forget, I was, I was literally on a National Review cruise. And we, you know, the, we would do these once or twice a year where you, uh, your most, you know, your supporters, you go on a cruise and you have panel discussions mm -hmm. and all of this. And so it's some of your core, you know, your core supporters who are on these things. And when I heard it, I was 
infuriated that he would say that. I was amazed at the number of people who were totally fine with it. It was their animosity for McCain had so, oh, and again, this is something we can get into more, but the, the hallmark of negative partisanship is animosity. In other words, you, mm. you are for your side, not because you love its ideas, but because you have hatred or fear of the other side. And so once McCain lost in 08, you know, he, it was an unforgivable sin losing to Obama. It was an unforgivable sin that he was sort of seen mm. as um, a media, you know, a, the media liked him more than your normal Republican. And all of those things put him on the outside. And in reality, you know, so when, when Trump went after him, he was not taking on somebody that the grassroots thought was one of our own. He was taking on a person that the grassroots thought of as one of them. And, right. and understanding that and seeing that in that moment was pretty shocking to me at, at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing here is that I, I often, I, I have never lived in the South, so this could just be a, a shibboleth that you can disabuse me of, but I, I think mm -hmm. of the South as having a greater commitment to civility as a bulwark against violence and social disorder. Like there's, a, I mean, maybe it's a veneer, but it's an important veneer where being polite, especially, you know, for men to be polite to one another right. is recognized to be important in the South in a way that it's not recognized to be important in Brooklyn or Los Angeles. <laughs> sure. And it's, you know, it's not an affectation, a meaningless affectation. It is, it is the thing that when you transgress it, uh, you recognize it was you know, one of the breaks on the, on the train that's leading toward violence, right? I mean, it's just you, you to come back to what you just said, it's in the context of an honor culture yeah. where you recognize how important it is to be polite to people and to be basically civil. And yet Trump is the, is the antithesis of civility, right? I mean, he's, he's somebody who, who, who never has played by those rules at all. So I mean, again, I just don't understand the Southern embrace of his style there. Yeah. Well, you know, they, going back to sort of what, what it is we're talking about. So the South is kind of, is a place of paradoxes. On the one hand, it's a place of a lot of civility and politeness. And people who come and visit often say, Man, wow, people are a lot nicer here. But it is also at the same time, more violent than a whole lot of other places yeah. in America. So these two things are existing side by side. And the violence often occurs when the honor shame sort of matrix is broken. In other words, when a person yeah. feels dishonored. And so then you're looking to punch, then you're looking to strike out, strike back. And that's what, that's what Trump was. And there's this really, some really interesting literature about this. There's this great, uh, fascinating book called Desire, Violence, and Divinity in Modern Southern Fiction. Mm. <laughs> How about that for a pull from, <laughs> from obscure academic work? But there's this great phrase in there. It's by a Kent State professor named Gary Kubia. And he says, Honor meant that Southerners beheld themselves as others beheld them. And, quote, their self-worth lived in the look of the other. Yeah. And, yeah. again, you see this all over, you know, the right-wing media. How dare they disrespect you? This is how somebody can own, like, six car dealerships and feel like they're, you know, they don't, that, and feel like they're not an elitist because 
somebody out at the New York Times looks down at them. And, and Trump really punched back at that. He, he punched back in that elitism and he defeated the elites on behalf of and to vindicate the honor of his supporters. And th- th- again, all of these things create this kind of deep psychological bond that helps explain you know, why we are where we are. Yeah, I guess as long as you remember that it was all of his norm violations were pointed in the right direction yes. from the point of view of his supporters, mm-hmm. then he was, you know, he was just a kind of golem of impropriety that was just aimed at the elites. And as long yes. as, and that's, that was fine. I mean, that was perfect. Well, so let's talk about um, what is true now and what, what the future looks like. I mean, I, I, I must say I'm, I'm uncertain about how, you know, we should play our hand here going forward. And <laughs> I, there, there are many moments where I've been uncertain about what to root for, what we should do. I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll bring one up, which is top of mind. I, I, I'm still uncertain about what the media should have done around the Hunter Biden laptop mm. scandal. Like that was, that was a moment where it looked like a potential replay of a terrible recent history where you had the October surprise of Comey stepping before the camera saying, we're looking into Hillary's emails yet again you know, 11 days out from the election. As I've said many times before, I do consider her loss overdetermined. She was a terrible candidate. And right. that was just, uh, you, you didn't need the hand of God to explain her loss right. in the end. But it, it, it also was pretty clear that, that it, it was reasonable to worry that if um, the New York Times and CNN and, and everyone else had given the Hunter Biden laptop problem a fair hearing right before the election, that that could have been the thing that tipped the balance into four more years of Trump. And so it's easy to understand the reluctance to do that. I guess, you know, that that reluctance need not have tipped into any dishonesty about what was plausible to believe at that point. But I I still, honestly, I, I, I do worry that playing by the rules there of saying, okay, let's look at this, could have easily given us four more years of Trump when from my point of view, it simply didn't matter. I mean, given that we had a president who was not committing to a peaceful transfer of power right. at that point, it simply didn't matter what was on that laptop. I mean, literally, I mean, I, you know, I would say that, you know, Hunter Biden could have had severed heads in his basement and it wouldn't <laughs> have mattered from my point of view. Well, I agree with you. I think that, and the key there is Hunter Biden. <laughs> you know, the difference between the Hillary laptop story and the you know the the Hillary investigation is that went straight to the heart of Hillary's conduct. The Hunter Biden laptop story was a Hunter Biden story, and although I, and I, the, I think people would say that that several of those emails suggest that there's clear impropriety and grift on President Biden's side because the, the references to you know the whatever the big dog needs to get ten percent of this or whatever like they, they're uh, again, I'm, I have not gone into the weeds on this, but it, it just Biden's yeah. conduct is implicated there. If you're, yeah. if you've gone down that rabbit hole, right? I've, I, you know, I've read those emails, and it's very hazy. And I think the the reality is that the story actually ended up with more legs in right wing media than it otherwise would have gotten because of the social media censorship. Mm-hmm. In other words, the instant that Twitter clamped down. And the instant that Facebook sort of minimized its visibility, 
was the instant that it became days and days and days of story in in right-wing media about look at what big tech is trying to do. It's trying to put its thumb on the scales. Don't let put big tech put its thumb on the scales. So my own view is that the whole big tech censorship drive at that point just flat out backfired, that it gave a lot of legs to a story that on its face was kind of just odd. You know, what Rudy Giuliani comes up with a laptop with a hard drive and through mysterious circumstances and it's got cryptic emails and we all know that Hunter Biden had a ton of problems and traded on his last name anyway. I mean, mm. like that's nothing new. But what was big in right wing media was the Twitter, Twitter blocking it. You can talk about that a lot. And you also then talk about Hunter Biden. But the idea, I've never found it particularly credible that the Hunter Biden story was going to shift opinion on Donald Trump and Trump and Biden in a material way, especially when, you know, this was very few people didn't know what to think about Donald Trump <laughs> by yeah. November 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also there's this, the glaring asymmetry there, which is whatever, if you take the worst possible interpretation right. of the Hunter Biden emails and you judge Joe Biden by that evidence, his level of corruption is it's like a, a firefly compared to the sun when you're looking over right. what, what Trump is not only obviously guilty of, but would brag about, you know, as something he's done. I mean, he's just, the guy is trailing thousands of lawsuits. You know, you just look at, you know, Trump University as a single data point. If anything like that were in Joe Biden's backstory, you know, presumably we would never hear about Joe Biden again. And yet, you know, nobody cares in Trumpistan. Right. So you, as you say, you, you have friends and, and family members who are Trump supporters. Is there anything that can be said to Trump supporters at this point that stands a chance of changing their view of the situation? I mean, like, just, I, I presume you're following the January 6th hearings? Yes. Is there any disclosure there, any possible disclosure there that would change opinion? Well, yes. Yes, but. Um, so the but is that there is a core in the GOP, whether it's 30%, 35%, that is absolutely unshakably Trumpian. That goes all the way back to his initial base in the primaries. But there's a larger, there's a large number of people who they're willing to go with somebody else. And if you're looking for now, what people I think are, they're looking for a moment of rejection of Trump. Yeah. And that's going to be elusive. If instead it's a moment where they move on. In other words, it's not going to be like a prodigal son moment where somebody says, I'm so sorry, I've been so wrong. Let me change. I feel like it would be more like the way a lot of the Republican base moved on from Nixon. You weren't going to find a ton of Republicans who'd say, I'm so sorry for supporting Richard Nixon. They just started supporting somebody else. Right. And I think that that's where January 6th can come in, that some of these hearings, to the extent that they penetrate into the Republican world by saying to people, look, this guy's just got too many problems to keep supporting. If you want to defeat the Democrats, go with somebody besides Donald Trump. And that's going to be probably a more compelling argument than you need to repudiate your prior support for Trump or repudiate Trump. Just move on. Yeah. So, but, but it just seems like, well, I mean, one, that's 
I mean, that that would be a good thing. I mean, depending on who they're moving on with, I guess. There's, yeah, there's, true. There's, you know, who, who knows how much things could degrade from here if it's uh, you know President Elect Marjorie Taylor Greene or you know, something <laughs> awful. But I, I guess what is just as a return to sanity, I think what you want, you know, anyone who's standing outside of Trumpistan must want is a an acknowledgement that certain things are true and certain things are untrue, right? Or certain things are plausible right. and certain things were never plausible. And I mean, it's a little bit like asking, you know, what would it look like for someone to come out of the QAnon cult and demonstrate that they're actually out of it, right? It's not, mm -hmm. it's not just a matter of moving on to a new thing and never explaining what happened. I, I feel like you need some explanation as to why you were willing to tolerate the claim that the election was stolen and that January 6th was just a, you know, a LARPing, right. know, just, just the LARPing of goofballs and that nothing was ever at stake. And there's no, been no you know, the, the, there has been no damage done to, to anything that, that mattered. Uh, and all it was all being blown out of proportion by the sheeple over at MSNBC, <laughs> and it's just like it's just there has to be some acknowledgement of how close we came to something truly terrible. I want that desperately. Like I, I want that acknowledgement. I I think that that acknowledgement is absolutely critical for healing this country. I'm very pessimistic that we'll ever get it. And I think that the way people reconcile it is as they learn additional facts, they'll, they'll do what people do. They'll rationalize their prior mistakes. They'll say, why would I ever trust, you know, why, why would I trust the media? The media had gotten so many things wrong. Look at what the media did to the Hunter Biden story. So I had no reason to trust the media. I had no reason to trust these institutions. So, you know, I, they feel fine about their, their prior position. So for the Trump supporters in your life, are, are any of them following the, the January 6th hearings or are they just tuning them out? Oh, the hardcore, no, not at all. Some of the more casual, yes. Yes, they are. They're yeah. following. And, you know, they'll, they'll just see a snippet here and a snippet there. But a lot of the more casual Trump supporters are totally ready to move on from him now. That, that's that's the those are the people who, for example, voted for Brian Kemp in Georgia or Brad Raffensperger in Georgia over mm -hmm. the Trump chosen candidate. Right. That's why you're seeing some in some of these one on one type races. The Trump endorsement isn't as valuable in the multi candidate primaries. That Trump endorsement can still be the key. Mm. So let's talk about some of the the more generic variables here, which could lead one to be pessimistic about where all this is headed. And, and here the problem mm -hmm. is larger than Trump. I mean, it's also the mirror image of extremism and negative polarization on the left. And it's, it's variables like, I mean, maybe I'll just throw some nouns at you and you can tell me, you can just put the puzzle pieces down wherever you want. I mean, how do you think about the role of federalism here? Mm. Well, I think there's a way in which federalism can be healthy and a way in which federalism can be deeply dysfunctional. So when I wrote my book, I thought one of the ways that we can diffuse this national tension is by making more important decisions at a local level where 
you know, for example, there are red states that can implement solutions for red, you know, red state solutions for problems. Blue states can do their their solutions and kind of de-escalate national politics. What I didn't anticipate, and this is where I wasn't quite pessimistic enough in my near-term analysis, is the way in which people would use local politics to fight national battles. Mm-hmm. So, for example, here in my community, there's a group called Moms for Liberty who went after critical race theory, but there's no critical race theory in our schools here. This is a very conservative district. So what did they do? They went after and they tried to ban the book Ruby Bridges Goes to School from the young elementary curriculum. That's not a critical race theory book. It's about Ruby Bridges desegregating schools in Louisiana. They tried, Hmm. one of the things they objected to was a Norman Rockwell painting. Hmm. So this is where, why are they doing this? Because they want to own the libs and they're worried about, you know, San Francisco schools. So they're trying to draw these big firewalls around the local schools and creating huge amounts of contention and anger. And so that's a negative way that federalism works. But a more positive way is, you know, kind of stick to your knitting and, and stick to, you know, what they're the issues that are salient locally instead of using your local school board election as a proxy for a national fight. And how do you think about the role of geography here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Geography is fascinating because, and I write in my book about this phenomenon called the big sort, where, and this is, comes from a Bill Bishop book of the same name from several years ago, how Americans are moving and living around people of like mind to a degree greater than any other time since we've been measuring this statistic. And what's happening as we sort like this by geography is we're actually increasing extremism because of this other phenomenon that I talk about the book called the law of group polarization, which means when people of like mind gather, they tend to become more extreme. Yeah, this, you know, this is based is some, on a, a Cass Sunstein paper? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So this is a Cass Sunstein concept from a paper in the late 1990s incredibly important. And once you understand that whole concept, a lot of American politics starts to make sense. Why, is, why are our academic institutions becoming so radical? Well, they're ideological monocultures and monocultures become more radical. And so that geographic sorting is taking that reality you see in a lot of institutions of higher education or other institutions and and putting it at a level that's citywide or statewide and increasing radicalization across huge geographic regions. Yeah, yeah. And, and how is culture bifurcating there? I mean, <laughs> it's interesting, like you made the claim early on when I asked you about the megachurch pastors who were um, prophesizing that uh, if you're on Twitter, you haven't heard of these people. Right. I mean, it's, that's a fascinating phenomenon because it's very easy. To, it, it, as much as we pay lip service to the idea that we're all in our bubbles and we're all uh, suffering some kind of algorithmic uh, myopia, this was true long before Twitter. Yeah. You know, as an author, you would you know you had the sacred totem of the New York Times bestseller list, but then when you con- would contemplate the books that were not on it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, like the Left Behind series of novels that outsell all the books on the bestseller list, but you know, no reader of the New York Times ever hears about them because I forget what the mechanism was there that like uh, Christian bookstores weren't reporting to the New York Times list or something right. like that. You just, there's this parallel culture that you just don't know about, but it's, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, it, it is 
part of this great sort you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's what's interesting is you'll have people who are pretty convinced they're deeply clued in on American culture and then will be completely ignorant of trends, cultural trends that impact and deeply shape not just millions of people, but tens of millions of people. Again, this, you know, going back to Pentecostal Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity is, I think, the fastest growing religion in the world. And if not the fastest growing uh, at scale, one of the fastest growing religions, yet the number of people in elite spaces who even know what it is, is really small. And so, you know, one of the things that even if you're not talking about these, you know, really consequential philosophical differences that we do have, and you just drill down to common pop culture, that's vanishing. One of the most interesting things that I saw after 2016, when a lot of people started to think about, well, wait a minute, wait, I don't understand a big part of America (laughs) if they could vote for Donald Trump was um, New York Times, uh, the upshot, you know, run by Nate Cohn, put out these maps of TV viewing. And what was fascinating to me was that red and blue America were just watching different shows. Just, you know, that's the kind of the most basic kind of common culture. Could you talk about the same TV show? And the answer is no. And, And that even extends into sports. You know, college football is a very red phenomenon. NBA basketball is very blue. You know, one of the last yeah. sort of common sports cultures is the NFL football. And it's incredibly contentious politically because, you know, the kneeling controversies and things like that. So I think the you, example you gave of uh, the shows right and left that were most popular, it was uh, Game of Thrones w- yes. w- was, lo- was watched on the left and the walk- Walking Dead was watched Walking on the right, yes, which I, I don't exactly. know what it says about me that I watched both of those. I, maybe it's just that I have too much time <laughs> on my hands. Same. Uh, That just makes us more culturally literate than the average person. Yeah, I was doing my research. (laughs) So, yeah, it's yeah, but you're you're we're all just by default blind to that segmentation because we don't see what we don't see, and we don't we don't report that absence of data as a blind spot. You know, we just notice whatever we do see. I mean, we're blindsided by some evidence of a trend that, like the election of of Trump that seemed to come out of nowhere. What are you uh, thinking about now as something that is off the radar of most people who are, who are in the elite bubble of some kind? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. I do think the, I do think, and, and this is not something that's increasingly on the radar, but I think is not enough on the radar. And that is the change in American gun culture. Mm. So, so the change in American gun culture is so there's always been a defiant element to American gun culture. There's sort of this uh, this saying that's been, you know, NRA type saying that's been around forever called Molon Labe, which I believe is like Latin for come and take it. Mm. Very defiant around this whole concept of my gun rights don't come after my gun rights. What I'm beginning to see it morphing into is that defiance, that spirit of defiance is buttressed by guns. In other words, so where it used to be the spirit of defiance in gun culture is don't come after my gun. It is my gun is a bulwark against you coming after me and my political positions, my preferred policies. My And one of the things that I think was incredibly dangerous was the increased prevalence, especially during 
the COVID era of armed protests. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah. where people are ca- open carrying their AR-15s. And armed protests outside of, for example, election workers' homes. And this is a shift in the gun culture away from, look, I own a gun and I own a gun for self-defense. And more towards, yeah, I own a gun and I own a gun to intimidate you. Yeah. And that, yeah. that is a, that watch out for that. Watch out for that. Yeah, that, that was all very scary and oppressive. Uh, and it's um, the, the, the joke that has circulated in, in a variety of forms, which uh, plays upon the, the, the ambient level of racism or, or imagined racism in white Southern gun culture, which is, you yeah. know, the, the people's feelings about the NRA will change when, you know, black people arm themselves with AR-15s with the same uh, level of abandon. But did, did you ever see the, the footage of that black militia? I forget where yeah. they were. How was that absorbed? Kentucky, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was an impressive show of force among, gosh, you know, hundreds of fully weaponized black militia members. And you know, it was as alarming as it is in any other context, but it was, you know, it, it had this perverse pleasure uh, associated with it, which is, okay, let's, it'd be interesting to see how the, the white you know, gun-crazed people in the South absorb this, uh, you know, new data point. What, what, how, what, was, the, what was the reaction? I, I, it's just well, a, the fondness for guns. Is that going to trump everything else and it doesn't, doesn't matter? To the extent that people even knew about it, you know, the, the gun rights movement is much too, far too savvy to sort of so blatantly switch its position mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. So, you know, a lot of it was, wait a minute, a, a keenest sense of awareness that if you come out against this, then you're going to undermine everything that you've been arguing. And so it was, you know, there were some people who expressed alarm about that, but as a general matter, what you'll see, especially amongst a lot of the more aggressive gun rights supporters, is they're going to quite openly applaud black gun owners who open carry. And they're, they're, they're not going mm-hmm. to impose that double standard. And because they know, you know, some of them, it's genuine, hey, look, gun rights for me means gun rights for thee. And some of it is just pure political you know, a a pure degree of political savvy that says, look, I know I'll really undermine my position if I'm so blatant, if I impose such a blatant double standard. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard any of my uh, rap about guns, but I I, I think I've heard, I think I heard you on at least one podcast in the aftermath of Uvalde. So I, 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 we basically agree, uh, I think. But it's it's just a very hard issue among among many other hard issues to parse yeah. in ways that don't uh, discombobulate everybody. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, I mean, it's, uh, you know, but it's also one of the, one of these issues where it's very hard to see any basis for progress because it's so. I mean, so you just take the the understandable alarm on the left around you know, just our outlier status on the world stage. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy the level of, it's, it's crazy the price we pay for all of our guns on a yearly basis, from murders to mass murders to suicides. And the idea that there's nothing we can do about that seems preposterous, right? And, and, it's, and yet, 
you literally need only give people on the left, you know, whether it's or, or you know, you know, elitists from center left to left, two or three sentences on the topic before they put both feet in their mouth, before they get everything wrong about ballistics. To I mean, it's just like they, literally, they will mispronounce the name of every gun manufacturer more complicated than Colt. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's just un- unbelievable. They talk about, you know, semi-automatics being designed to kill people as fa- fast as possible. And, the, and then it becomes clear that they think semi-automatics and fully automatics are the same thing. Yeah. And it's, this is, this happens to, you know, this will, this will happen on, you know, Meet the Press or on CNN or, or, I mean, it's just, and the, and the price they pay, I mean, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe that maybe the conversation can't even be had. So they're not actually paying a Price in, in in loss of credibility because they you know no one no one's listening to them on the other side of the argument. But in in my world, it, it's just it is it is just one malapropism after right. another, and yeah. so it's so it's very easy to see. You know, I, I I consider myself you know quite outside of gun culture. I mean, perhaps unlike mm-hmm. you, I mean, maybe this is one difference between us because I don't live in a red state. But as connected as as I am to the reasons to own firearms. And as much as I've trained with them, you know, most of what's in my brain is a repudiation of gun culture for all the reasons that would be familiar and comforting to people on the left. And I have no religious attachment to the Second Amendment, and yet I have a very pragmatic attachment to the freedom to own a firearm, given my perception of just the realities of human violence and the fact that calling 911 is, is not, in fact, a a means of self-defense in right. any American city uh, now or in the future. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, again, that's just me whinging about the current state of the matter. But I, 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 just, I don't see how we make progress on that problem and several others that currently divide our society. Well, you, you raise a really good point, and that is, you know, if Gun rights supporters tend to know guns. <laughs> they they tend to to know different you know they know a lot about guns and and you'll have these spasms of public conversation where people will be advocating for gun control or they'll be ad, you know they'll be talking about certain kinds of guns and it's very clear very quickly that they don't know what they're talking about. And it it's hard to sort of explain to people how unpersuasive that is. Yeah. If, or the or the claim that no one ever successfully defends himself with a gun. Right. That is an article of faith, you know, almost universally subscribed on the left. That this is that the right. idea that the the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun that that is basically borne out so infrequently that it is a it's just a laugh line, right? Like that that just doesn't happen. And, you know, you just need only, you know, look for videos on YouTube. There's an endless number of videos on oh, YouTube where the- you can just see, you know, a good guy or at least a non a bystander with a gun solving the problem that would, would have been solved no other way. Right, right. And, you know, that's evidence of the media bubbles that we live in, because yeah. I can think off the top of my head of situation after situation where somebody stopped even mass shootings or somebody you know, people with handguns who stopped people with AR-15s. I mean, the, these are things that happen. And, and you know, and when I talk about guns, I, I talk to, I'm, I uh, speak to in a lot of places that are very deep blue and very much opposed to gun rights overall. And I just tell my family's story. And I talk about the, 
number of times that we've been doxxed, for example, by white mm-hmm. nationalists and the threats that we faced. And I said, what's your recommendation for how I should protect my family? And, and keep in mind, I don't have the resources for 24-7 security. And if I did have the resources for 24-7 security, what do you think they'd be carrying? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and it really does actually, when you enter into the conversation, sort of being transparent like that and just say, look, this is a reality that I face. What do you have to say to me? It actually kind of diffuses a lot of the intensity because it makes it much more concrete. And I'm a human being in front of them. And then you know, facing a threat from people that they realize are threatening, you know, they're, they're not going to say that we should not pay attention to white nationalists. They would never say that. Mm-hmm. And so it really does humanize the conversation I found. And then you can just sort of start to walk people through the decision-making process and their reasoning. And I, I've been really surprised, actually, at the level of honest and real and conversation and flexibility that people will have when when you kind of go back to the beginning and walk people through the self-defense decision-making process. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I realize we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but uh, it's interesting because uh, ethically, it is a real conundrum for me because I, I, I do get the outside view of our predicament, which is we look like we have we're a society that has completely lost its mind, right? It's like, like if you if you look at us right. from England or Australia, you know, what are you? This, this attachment to guns is causing just you know reliably year after year tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, and you know just as bad these spectacularly awful episodes, right. which again are just a rounding error on the the actual problem. But they're just so awful, these mass yeah. shootings in schools, that you know it, it, it's you know society straining, nonetheless, and all and the problem is just so obviously that you have all these guns in circulation, right? So get rid of the guns, and you'll you'll be Japan, and you won't <laughs> have this problem. And it's I, I'm sympathetic with that. Like if, if if we could just you know start from scratch, it would be tempting to say. Okay, let's let's not do that Second Amendment thing this time, and just have a a gun free zone. But that is also a world in which, you know, as I, as I've argued previously, the youngest, most aggressive, largest man basically always wins, right? right. So if the if if the lunatic at your door is bigger and stronger and younger than you are, you've got a problem you actually can't solve. Right. And mm-hmm. again, you know, when he's in your living room, calling the cops is not a solution. Yeah. Right. That's and an ethical conundrum that I, for which a gun is actually the answer. Right. I mean, it's, it, it, right. it is it, to call it, this is, you know, this is NRA pablum, but it is called an equalizer appropriately because it's the only thing currently, barring some invention of a, of a, a super taser or something that, that, that uh, functions like a gun. Uh, albeit non-lethally, uh, it is the only thing that gives you, that takes a a violent contest, it puts it at range, and it takes it out of the the domain of athleticism and size and strength. Right. That that will be decisive. That's exactly right. The way the way I put it to people is, 
I have a right of self-defense. A human being, just as a human being, has a right of self-defense. And very few people will disagree with that statement. They'll, they will not disagree that you as a human being have a right of self-defense. But I, if I have a right of self-defense sort of in the abstract, if I don't have the legal means of obtaining effective self-defense, effective self-defense, then that right is kind of meaningless. And so yeah. in a world where there are four, in a nation where there are 400 million guns, there are 400 million guns in this country. What is the foreseeable threat that I will face? Uh, you know, it might be a person with a baseball bat. It might be a person with fists. But when it comes to a deadly threat, the foreseeable threat that I will face is a person with a gun. And so this idea that if I'm going to have an effective right of self-defense, then I have to have that equalizer, as you say. And But, but even and, again, I, 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 that, that side of it is totally understandable, and I, and I agree with it. But it, it's the mm-hmm. other side of it that I find even more compelling, which is mm-hmm. in, a, in a world without guns, what does the problem of human violence look like? Well, it, it doesn't have the same scale, and that's important. But it does have a a character that I find especially abhorrent, which is the big maniac always wins, mm-hmm. right? Or virtually always yeah. wins, you know, right. barring you know some you know miracle of of training and good luck, where you have okay, well, you know, a black belt in Brazilian jiu jitsu, you know, actually solves the problem for you. You what you have is. I mean, you can, you can, again, these are, you know, you need only see one video like this to have your, your ethical hardware recalibrated. You know, there's a video I saw a few years ago of a a home invasion where you just, you just see, I mean, for whatever reason, this woman had like a nanny cam running in her living room, which captured her home invasion. And you just see a guy come in and, and, you know, a 230 pound man come in and just Mm -hmm. beat a woman senseless in her living room. And, so if if you don't think someone should be able to own a gun, you have to be able to say that woman shouldn't be able to to own a gun, right? And and you know, watching that video, there's nobody who on earth who I would more want to hand a gun to than that woman in that situation when she's when she had the hmm. the time to arm herself as a guy is kicking in her front door, and you know that that's that's the in my in my view that's the most compelling argument for gun ownership. And unless you're going to make moral contact with that from the left, from the, you know, the gun control, gun safety side of the the argument, you're just not, you're not having the conversation that people on the right or on the, you know, the gun owning side would require that you have to even dignify your argument with with a hearing. Yeah. So, you know, one of the issues that we have, I think, is that America, there are other countries that have far higher homicide rates with far lower rates of gun ownership. So it's not just that guns are saturating the country. We have the highest rate of gun ownership in the world and far from the highest rate of homicide. I guess the comparison is to other first world, highly developed democracies, right? Like, you know, Western Europe. If we compare ourselves to Latin America, all of a sudden we look pretty good. Yeah, true. Now, the interesting thing though, Sam, this is something that's been interesting to me for a while is, is Europe the better comparator to the U.S. versus other parts of the world? We often compare ourselves to Europe for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, we're an Anglosphere country. The initial wave of settlement from came from Europe by and large. 
we have an advanced economy like Europe does, but we're really different from Europe in other ways. For example, religion. I mean, Europe is a much less religious place than the United States. We're far more like Latin America when it comes to religion, for example. So I think we're this kind of hybrid. When we talk about American exceptionalism, that's not saying, mm. yay, America, America's the greatest and best. It's quite literally saying we're different. And I think that we're quite different from much of the rest of the world in some material respects. And we have, we're a hybrid culture in a lot of ways. I think we have some much more Latin American, say, cultural elements and some European cultural elements. And, and I think the comparison of, say, the United States to Britain or Germany or France on the violence part, much less, say, the religion part is not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily apt. Yeah. I also, you know, we spoke about honor culture, particularly in yeah. the South before, and, and we certainly have much more of that than most advanced uh, first world democracies. Right. Right. You know, and this is something that gets to the, a lot of the immigration fights. And there was this controversy a couple of years ago when a Penn professor named Amy Wax, Penn law professor, talked about how it would be Amer better for America culturally and sort of the not she was for more um, immigration from Europe because saying that was closer culturally to America, sort of saying, no, it's not a racial analysis, it's a cultural analysis. And my response to that was, is that really true? Because Europe is a lot more secular than the US. If you're getting immigration from Africa or from uh, Latin America, you're actually getting people who are more religiously similar to much of America than you are from Europe. And again, this just sort of goes to this unique American culture that we have that doesn't have a one-to-one -one comparison anywhere else. Maybe she wants to Im import more peaceful, secular people and not so many violent <laughs> religious people. <laughs> could, could be. <laughs> okay, well, so we just had a significant sidebar on guns. You know, I think we, um, we generally agree that it's a, you know, an interesting and consequential ethical problem to sort out and... I think my, I mean, I, I've gone on at great length elsewhere about my views here, which are just from a political partisan point of view, highly non-standard. I mean, I'm both uh, a defender right. of gun uh, rights, and also I think it should be far more difficult to get a gun, and, and I think you should be light, it should be, you know, the, the shorthand version of this for me is that I think it should be like getting a pilot's license, right? Like, you really should have to get some training and vetting and it should you shouldn't be able to walk into a Walmart and walk out with an AR-15. But uh, I think we have we have uh, other topics to put to bed here. And one is uh, because we're we're talking at, uh, during the week where these these January six hearings are proceeding, and it's really magnifying my sense of American division because I, I have a sense that the mm -hmm. people who should be watching these hearings certainly aren't, and. I worry that we're just playing to an echo chamber uh, for the gratification of people who already understand that Trump posed a, a kind of existential threat to our democracy. And uh, I just I know how that sentence will bounce off the ears of you know, fully half of America as a ridiculous overstatement of the facts. Going forward, what is your view of of the situation? I mean, do you think prosecuting Trump is in the cards? Is that even, is, is that what, what you would hope for on the basis of 
what we've seen so far, or is that really a liberal pipe dream? I, I'm actually of the view that prosecuting Trump is a viable path, but not in the way that most people are thinking of it. Most people are thinking of prosecuting Trump through the prism of January 6th. I think the best evidence of Trump's criminality is actually coming through Georgia. And mm. this is where, you know, there's tape recording of Trump saying, you know, essentially saying to the Georgia Secretary of State that this could go very bad. You know, you need to find these votes for me. And by the way, it can go very bad for you if you don't. And and this this is something let's put it let's put it like this. If you're a small town sheriff and you're running for an election and you're trailing, say, by 50 votes and you you go to the you know county election commissioner and you say, I need I need 55 votes or you might find yourself arrested. That that would be illegal like that. You know, that that makes it it's quite blunt. It's it's quite clear that that would be illegal under both federal and state law because you're trying to solicit election fraud. And what Trump did was fundamentally that he he says, hey, I need 12000 votes. And look, I'm going to raise the possibility you could be prosecuted if we don't find those votes. And the the thing that's different about Georgia from the January 6th situation is that there is actually federal case law under a federal statute called the Conspiracy Against Rights, which I believe is 18 U.S.C. Section 241, that talks about, and the case law around, around this, this statute says, hey, it's unlawful to try to expand the number of votes beyond the lawful number. It's lawful to try to limit the number of votes below the number that was actually lawfully cast. There's there's actually case law, especially at sort of local election levels, that's directly relevant here. And so you've got a Fulton County grand jury that's, that is looking at this issue from a Georgia state law prov- provision or position. And Georgia state law is, again, pretty darn clear. And there's, there's actually been a very comprehensive legal analysis of, of Trump's actions in Georgia that I think crosses the threshold for prosecution. And that's a little bit different from the January 6th scenario. It's, it's less right. lurid. There wasn't any big riot, but I don't think there's evidence that crosses the threshold for prosecution that Trump actually incited the riot in the way that the law prohibits incitement. The Georgia situation, I think, is much more, a much more viable prosecution. Now, I tend to be of the view that as difficult and, and terrible a precedent it is to indict a former president, a worse precedent is saying that former, just the status of making you a president or a former president puts you above the law. I think we can't have that. Yeah. What are your expectations going forward politically into 2024? I mean, do, do you think he will run? Could you imagine who the Democrats are going to run? <laughs> I mean, it, it just it seems to me that I mean, for, well, whether or not Trump runs, it's wise to worry at this point that um, both the president and the vice president are um, fatally flawed candidates, whoever the Republicans put forward. And there might not be the mechanism in the Democratic Party to recognize that both are fatally flawed. I mean, even if, even if Biden decides to bow out, I'm not seeing how the Democrats have a, a come to Jesus moment with Kamala Harris and say, listen, you are, you are unelectable and we're putting forward, you know, Oprah or somebody else in your stead. <laughs> how does all of this work? How do we, how do we not wind up with a second Trump term should he run? 
Boy, this is a tough question. You know, interestingly enough, I tend to think that the actual overhang possibility of criminal prosecution could lead Trump to declare sooner rather than later, Hmm. in part to create an additional hurdle for prosecutions to sort of say, you don't, you don't want to prosecute a the front runner, the Republican front runner for the presidency. I mean, that would be a vi- norms violation. You don't want to do that. You know, mm. then. So I, I kind of feel that there's a possibility, and Maggie Haberman has reported this, that there's, there's serious consideration of Trump running, announcing relatively soon. But at the same time, there's evidence that Trump's grip is slipping. There was a um, University of New Hampshire poll just released saying that Trump now is trailing DeSantis in New Hampshire. Hmm. which is a major change from just a few months ago. And so there's evidence. And then, of course, the Georgia primary where Trump's chosen candidates just got walloped by the Georgia establishment candidates, Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp. But at the same time, it's all mixed. You know, Dr. Oz squeaked out a win in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. He never would have won without, without Trump's endorsement. And same with J.D. Vance in Ohio. So it's mixed, but the the bottom line is Trump is no longer the single most dominant figure in GOP politics. There, it's up for grabs more than it used to be. And my own thought is that the longer he waits to jump in, the longer he goes with this sort of ambig- ambiguity, the more his hold slips. Mm-hmm. As as far as the Democrats go, huh. I personally consider, I don't have any inside information on this, but I I tend to consider that it's unlikely that Biden will run again, but there's no way he's making an announcement like that until the absolute last moment, because the instant he says he's not running is the instant he's a lame duck. And I know for a fact amongst Democratic strategists that there's a real hesitance to put Kamala Harris forward for the nomination. Yeah. At the same time, there's a real a sort of sense of confusion as to who it would be if it's not her. Yeah, and and obviously the allegation would be if if she were if she were passed over, the allegation would be it's because she's a woman or because she's black or both. That would be the Twitter. Yeah, that would yeah. be what Twitter says. And that does strike me as patently false because you if you imagine a a different candidate in the same mold, someone like Michelle Obama, I would predict a very different outcome. I mean, Michelle Obama seems, you know, who knows how she would survive the actual process of campaigning, but on the face of it, she seems eminently electable, whereas Kamala Harris doesn't. So it's, I, mean, I think the variables of sex and race are not at all the problem with Kamala Harris. Gavin Newsom seems to be positioning himself, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You can tell me more about what you think about him than than I can say. He seems to be positioning himself. You know, I I personally, from a conservative standpoint, I find the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, more interesting. He's he's somebody who has taken a more libertarian Mm -hmm. approach to governance than many other Democrats. So, you know, he's in a kind of in a more moderate position, which I think is a sweet spot for Democrats. The the most interesting pre-election analysis of the Democratic electorate came from Nate Cohn in 2019 when he analyzed the difference between the online Democrats and the offline Democrats. And the mm-hmm. online Democrats tended to be whiter, more highly educated, and more progressive. And they were one third of the party. 
and the two-thirds of the party was more diverse and more moderate. And that's where the bulk of the Democratic, Democratic electorate is, not the bulk of the activist class or the philanthropy class, but the actual voters tend to be more moderate and more diverse. And who, who can appeal to that two-thirds is going to be a real question. And Kamala Harris did not appeal to that two-thirds in 2020. Yeah. How do you view the problem of communication and cooperation at this point? So, I mean, if you variables like free speech and its abridgment, hmm. misinformation and conspiracy thinking, the Overton window, I mean, just the, the, the quality of our conversation with one another online and off, and what that portends for, for the future. What are your thoughts on the current state and what are your thoughts on what we should do about it to improve it? At the risk of oversimplifying, I'm going to say offline America has got to save online America from itself. Mm. There's a a lot of data, and I think I've mentioned this before in the conversation, that the more online you are, the more wrong you are about your political opponents. And you think they're more hateful than they are. You think they're more extreme than they are. And quite literally, this Twitter conversation is taking this activist class of Americans and turning them against each other at a scale that's extremely dangerous and troubling because this activist class also happens to be the people who spend all their time thinking and working in politics, whereas this very large number of Americans, what the More in Common Project calls the exhausted majority, has largely disconnected. And, and the problem you have is, the good news is you have a majority of Americans who want to see a way through this. The bad news is the word exhausted, that they're the ones who are checked out. But when they do check in, they can make a major difference. A prime example of this is the recalls in San Francisco, mm-hmm. where you had these hardcore progressive board mem- uh, school board members, hardcore progressive prosecutor. And it was progressives who got rid of them. That was not a Fox News revolt in San Francisco. This was normal, everyday, average progressive Americans saying that's too radical. And, you know, that you saw that a little bit in the Georgia primary where normal, average, everyday Republicans said, no, this MAGA obsession with 2020 is not a reason to get rid of a sitting governor who's done a solid job. So you are seeing some revolt to the normals. But on a day-to-day basis, we're still in a position where the activist class is ripping each other to shreds online. Yeah, yeah. How, how worried are you that Trumpism is a durable mania beyond Trump himself? So, I mean, like, if you, let's say Trump decides not to run in, in 2024, and it's DeSantis uh, or someone else who has carried abundant water for Trump all this time. When you think of someone like DeSantis, do you, do you worry that the same norm-violating, anti-democratic genius is at work in him as a result of his, uh, just the alliance and, and sunk cost with Trump? Or do you think that once that we, we inherit a different batch of figureheads, we're going to default to, some, to a more normal politics? So I'm very worried about, so I, I don't think Trumpism is something that is specifically, I mean, certainly the, the ambition of Trump, the man, 
Uh, Trumpism at its core is Trump's personal ambition. It's not really an ideology, but he's surfing on a wave of populist reactionary anger that existed before him and will exist after him. And the interesting question to me, though, is here, here's the dynamic. And a lot of times I think that we underestimate sort of the psychological and practical dynamics of political races in this sense. I think there's a very different world where DeSantis takes on Trump versus a world where Trump steps aside and DeSantis tries to inherit Trump's right. base. Yeah, that's a good so, point. And so if DeSantis is trying to beat Trump, he's going to have to run as a counter to Trump's base is going to be with him, but Trump's base is what, 30, 35% of the party. So DeSantis is going to have to appeal to people who are not Trump's base to win. That's going to totally change the dynamic of the race. Although isn't, isn't uh, I think the last stat I saw here was that, I think it was 62% of Republicans believe the, you know, the so-called big lie, or that the election, right. 2020 election was stolen. So isn't that his base? <laughs> so that's an interesting number because there's gradations of belief. So- there's a difference between somebody who is receiving a poll question and thinks, well, wasn't there something funny going on with absentees in Pennsylvania? I just don't right. feel comfortable with this whole thing versus, hey, I just watched 2000 Mules, you know, and yeah. this thing was rotten to the core. And that's why I keep pointing back to the Georgia primary. In the Georgia primary, Trump drew the line in the sand and he said the litmus test here is what do you think about the 2020 election and the guys that the folks that trump put forward were walloped so there's a category of republican who has disquiet about 2020 but doesn't want to keep relitigating it and i think there's a category of republican who has disquiet about 2020 and is obsessed with it and that's the core of the trump base and the the DeSantis or a Pence or a Cotton or anyone else who would take on Trump is not going to pull the people who are dyed in the wool 2020 conspiracy theorists. They're going to be getting the, the person who they might have some questions, but they, they're, they're focused on 2024 and going forward and not focused on relitigating 2020. And that will drive Trump nuts. That will drive him nuts. Yeah, that would be fun to watch. I, I, <laughs> I'm hoping for that. Well, David, it's great to get you on the podcast finally, and um, I just I hope we can do it again once we have uh, some more things on this uh, part of the map to talk about. No doubt, it's going to be a an exciting and and uh, likely dispiriting uh, <laughs> campaign cycle as as it ramps up. Um, as I mean, I'm sure the uh, midterms are going to be a wasteland for. Democrats, but uh, I, as I hear myself speaking these sentences, I'm now fe- feeling my mood plummet because the truth is, the, I view the fact that we have to pay really any significant attention at all to politics as just an, a, a totally odious opportunity cost, right? I mean, the, the, the mm. sign of a society working is how little time people have to spend sweating politics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're just not in that world. So anyway, I just uh, I hope that uh, you will uh, help guide me through the changes to come when uh, when when they arrive. Yeah, I you said that very well. When poli- the more salient politics is to your life, the less healthy the culture is, I think is a pretty good basic formula. 
And yeah. especially when you, you overlay that with the incredible distrust in institutions even outside of politics and means more people are turning to politics to try to control institutions. And that's, that's incredibly dangerous. So before we go, um, tell people where they can find your current work. I know you're, uh, you're at the dispatch mm -hmm. and maybe, uh, tell me what you're turning your attention to next. Do you have, do you have another book you're working on or what are you, what's taking up your time? Yeah, I no no book is in the cards quite yet. Um, but I write for the Dispatch twice weekly, and I write for the Atlantic once weekly. I have a, mm -hmm. a newsletter from the Atlantic as well. And if you want to sort of figure see what I'm writing about, I'm always posting it. Here I said, you know, we need to save America from the online people, but I'm always posting <laughs> what I'm working on online. So you can follow me on Twitter at, at David A. French. Great. Well, thank you, David. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor.